Fellas. Welcome to the OMR podcast. This week's guest is Scott Galloway, especially in media and marketing circles. Scott needs no introduction. So the only thing I want to say up front is um, maybe the reason why you should listen to this podcast, even though I obviously have a strong German accent, but I listened to all the other podcasts and interviews Scott did in the previous month. And um, I tried to come up with new questions and new uh, discussion that has not happened elsewhere before. So maybe that's a good enough reason for you to put up and live through um, my German accent and maybe enough reason to still enjoy what Scott had to say. Have fun. Okay, first question. Um, people here in Germany perceive you as an NYU professor with um, unusual arguments and thinking. But I mean, when you follow what you do a little more closely, you are much more than that. You are an entrepreneur. Can you maybe like tell our audience a little bit where you're coming from and what your background is? Sure. So uh, I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. In business school, uh, I co-founded a firm called Profit Brand Strategy, which is a strategy consulting firm that's now about 500 people. Then started an e-commerce company called Red Envelope that went public in 2002. And on the day of the IPO, resigned from the board and took a position on the faculty at NYU Stern School of Business, where I've taught for 15 years on the faculty. I am what's called a clinical professor, meaning that I don't have a PhD. And in exchange, they want me to be in private practice such that I can indoctrinate some real-world learnings into the course. And I try and do that. And then in 2010, I started L2. But uh, for the last 15 years, I've been teaching. Teaching is kind of my thing. It's the only thing I know I'll be doing hopefully for the next 20 or 30 years. But uh, I'm an entrepreneur such that I can uh, live in Manhattan and live the lifestyle I want. <laughs> and, and one thing I found especially interesting is like, I think it was 10 years ago, you led a consortium of investors that, uh, bought, that bought parts of the New York Times. Is that correct? Yeah, so uh, that's exactly right. About 10 years ago, uh, I raised about $600 million and led a group to become the largest shareholder in the New York Times company and became the first board member that was put on the board over the objections of the family and uh, served on the board there for two years. Uh, but uh, on a regular basis, kind of every couple of years, raise some money and become a large shareholder in a company and then go on the board and try and help them unlock unlock value with uh, the kind of the application of technology. So I uh, have done that, have done that several times. So, so, you're, so you're living somewhere in the intersection of e-commerce, consulting, publishing. Um, so, I mean, you're an entrepreneur, certainly with like a journalistic uh, approach to life. Is that, can you say that? Sure. I like that. That's poetic. That sounds nice. <laughs> I mean, you, you write a lot of um, of, of, of personal stuff about yourself. Um, when did you decide to be like very um, private and sometimes even intimate at times in public? I mean, is that something that is like an entrepreneurial idea, like a marketing idea? People can, I mean, I, I read your weekly uh, newsletter, No Mercy, No Malice, every Friday. And sometimes it's, 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 it's even, for me, it's, it's um, unusual. It's, it's strange to see somebody that like um, is, is um, in the public eye and still is so intimate. Why is that? Well, I want everyone to know what Facebook knows. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I, I, look, I, I, my approach to writing is I try to write as if no one's going to read it, and I try to be very open and honest. My goal is that my, I hope that my boys, who are 7 and 10 now, in 20 or 30 years, revisit those posts and feel as if they know me better. I think people 
even the people who are closest to you only see a fraction of really who you are and what you're thinking and what you really believe. So writing is a fantastic way to communicate uh, in a thoughtful, organized way, sort of who you really are. But, you know, the, the, the hard part is you have to be very unfiltered or kind of unvarnished. And I write these posts very late at night and I try to write them as if uh, no one's going to read them. So I try to be very open. Is, 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 I mean, so there's no marketing strategy attached to that? It's all like you doing that for yourself and for your boys? And I mean, it, sometimes I, I, I think, it, I mean, you're somebody that's so like involved with marketing has to realize he's becoming somewhat of an influencer here. So you're being generous. I don't, you know, so far, it doesn't really, it doesn't really relate or support the business I'm in. So I, my firm was acquired by a very large research firm called Gardner. And they actually don't like those posts because I often use profanity in them. I'm often quite critical of other tech leaders. So I would, you know, so far it has not been complimentary to my professional life. It's very rewarding in the sense that a lot of people read them and enjoy them. I hear from people I haven't heard from a long time. I hear from interesting people. I get to meet a lot of interesting people. I get a lot of positive uh, reinforcement from people, you know, whether it's a, a mother living in Tokyo raising her kids who relates to one of my posts or uh, I've heard from several CEOs of large Fortune 500 companies that are interested in talking more about my views on Amazon. So it's very rewarding what I'd call uh, personally, emotionally, psychologically. But in terms of business, I'm not sure it's a, um, you know, you could argue it creates awareness, but I'm not sure it's really what I call synergistic. It's not something we would have sat down in a strategy meeting and said, okay, Scott needs to start writing a blog post about, about his children. It's not, you know, it's not immediately obvious how it, how it uh, dovetails with the business. Okay. Um, do you feel, I mean, obviously, I mean, you mentioned that in your post that after the Gardner acquisition, you're like financially independent. Um, is that, did that change like the way you do your business being like a rich man now? Or were you that already sure. before, after the first acquisitions? Yeah, so it's economic security is a wonderful thing. And what it, it does a few things, it, it makes you live your life more deliberately because you realize instead of totally focused on most of my life, I was totally focused on getting economic security so I could take care of myself, take care of my family, do the things I want to do, start businesses, etc. Once you have economic security, you start thinking about um, kind of how finite life is you become more deliberate you start you know i know that i only have another 10 holidays with my youngest boy and another seven with my with my oldest so i start thinking very deliberately about the amount of time i spend with them so you, it does change your mindset a little bit but one of the really wonderful things is it liberates you so i think 20 years ago when i was trying to you know, pitch companies to work with me or invest in me, I think I would have been a lot more reticent to write some of the things I write because I would have been worried about the ramifications or upsetting somebody. Uh, because when you're in business, a big part of your job is to not piss people off because you never know when you're going to run into them. You never know if you're going to be selling products, your products to their company. And while I don't ever want to create bad feelings uh, for, for no good reason, You know, I try to write these things sort of unafraid because uh, I'm an atheist. I feel like my time here is limited and then it's over. And as long as you're not being malicious, I like to just speak as I try to speak as openly, as honestly as possible. I don't always 
I don't know, succeed. But having a certain level of economic security emboldens you to be a little bit more honest and a little less worried about retribution. Do you do you feel like or do you realize that what you do sort of like replaces journalism or old school journalism for a lot of people? Like what you, the way you cover business and, and big tech and even your personal things. I mean, it's, you started out as a B2B consulting firm, as a, as, a, as a research institute, but now in a way you're replacing journalism. Is that true? I don't think it is. I think journalists have much higher standards than I do. They do a lot more fact checking. There's a lot more rigor. Good journalists will have a more balanced point of view. My point of view is not balanced. Um, so mine is more, I would call narrative. Uh, it's nonfiction, but it's, it's pure kind of narrative from an individual who, so you know, I have a lot of respect for journalism and the rigor and integrity they bring to the field of journalism. So I don't think of myself as a journalist and, and, Uh, you know, I, I'm trying to I'm trying to not be the best at what I do. I'm trying to be the only one who does what I do. So having in the same blog post whether or not Facebook is monopoly and then talking about, you know, spending time with my mother when she was sick, you, you usually don't find those in the same blog post from the same person. So I'm trying to do something a little bit different. But, you know, this is a golden age of journalism. I know a lot of what I would refer to as legitimate credible journalists. And for the last 20 or even 30 years, journalism has been under attack. But because there's so much false narrative out there and because there's so many important people promoting a false narrative, that journalism and that fact checking and that pursuit, that, that pursuit of the truth has become more scarce and therefore more valuable. So we're seeing, we're seeing a, a renaissance in what I would call legitimate journalism, but I don't, I don't think I'm a part of that. Okay. okay, maybe just to finish that up, why did your um, New York Times uh, takeover uh, thing sort of fell short? Or why didn't, how did it end up in the end? Well, uh, the timing wasn't great. So we bought our stock at the end of 07 and the end, beginning of 08. And the stock was at 18. And within 14 months, because of the crisis or the recession, the stock was at three. So it was, a, it was, it was, it was poor timing. Also, I think I underestimated how difficult it would be to, to create change. Uh, I underestimated how powerful Google and Facebook would be in terms of taking advertising dollars out of the traditional marketing ecosystem. I also think personally I was ineffective on the board. I think I was too aggressive, too brash, arrogant, and as a result, I think I was just sort of put in a corner and ignored. Um, so bad timing, market failure, and personal failure. Other than that, it all went great. <laughs> um, like continuing a little bit the, the publishing talk, um, obviously um, a German company made a major move uh, a couple of months ago and, and, and bought one of the most relevant uh, US business sites, Business Insider. Were you surprised to see that, that Axel Springer actually like, acquired acquire such, a, such a US company? No, I, I like Axel Springer a lot. I think uh, Matthias Dupfner is a real visionary. Um, the the gentleman who runs um, the gentleman who runs the U.S. operation is really intelligent, Jens. And they want to, you know, they want to be. They need. They know they have a dying business in their print business. It's a great business, but it's a dying business. So they know they know they need to reinvent themselves. And Business Insider is a fantastic. You know, it's a. It's probably the best new media, I don't know what the term would be, new media, business journalist, you know, business journalism entity. They've done a fantastic job. I think Henry Blodgett is one of the most thoughtful analysts, if you can call him that, 
uh, in the world right now. Now, no doubt they overpaid, um, but, uh, you know, I still, you know, did they overpay? Yes. Was it a good acquisition? Also, yes. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see Axel Springer do a lot of things in the U.S. They purchased eMarketer, which is another great company. But, you know, my sense is they, they, don't want to, they don't want to wait around and be disrupted. They want to get off their heels and onto their toes. Um, do you follow any of the other German digital companies that are, that are, that are like internationally active? Uh, Trivago, Zalando, any, any thoughts on those? Maybe, maybe even Rocket Internet? Yeah, Rocket Internet is interesting. Um, I don't know how sustainable it is, but it's, it's an interesting concept. They've done a good job. Zalando is probably the most, you know, arguably the most impressive. They're kind of the closest thing to a high-end Amazon in the world right now, and their stock offering has been incredible. I'll be very interested to see what happens over the next two or three years, because if you look at the number of fulfillment facilities Amazon has opened in Europe over the last six years, It's kind of D-Day part two. You're seeing the Americans landing millions and millions of troops on the shores of continental Europe with Amazon. And Amazon has more capital than Zalando. So I'm actually, I think Zalando is wonderful. I think they do a great job. I think Amazon is going to have a very negative impact on them. And I think it's actually one of the reasons why Amazon should probably be broken up. I think when great companies like Zalando are under threat from, from companies just because these companies have so much capital that great companies like Zalando may or may not survive. Um, I think it brings up kind of larger existential questions. But look, Zalando's fantastic. The, uh, I forget what it's called, the LinkedIn of Germany does a pretty good job. Yeah, yeah. Zing. Um, Zing, yeah. So, I, you know, there's, there's look, Germany's the largest economy in Europe, a ton of great universities. It has all the... It has all the ingredients to, to build unicorns. I'm actually surprised there aren't more unicorns coming out of Germany. Um, a lot of people here in Germany trust that the consumer internet is already lost uh, to, to, the, to the big four and, and others. And that what keeps us in the game long term will be sort of like the industrial internet, the in internet of uh, B2B companies, of industry companies. Any comments on that? Yeah, it's a really thoughtful comment, and it sounds right. I do think the consumer internet, there will always be it's sort of the odd uh, company that breaks through, and it'll get a lot of media attention, and it'll give us the impression that it's a competitive environment with a lot of opportunity. But the reality is we have four monopolies that are soaking or sucking most of the oxygen out of the room. B2B is, um, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, it makes a lot of sense for me. You're Middlestadt or the, I forget what the term is for all the, Mid-sized companies, yep. but uh, yeah, it, it makes it makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, although, I think what people find is B 2 B is is also pretty difficult. I don't know if it's got the same monopoly power, concentration of power, but um, yeah, it, 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 bottom line is that what you say resonates is true. Okay. Okay. Um, so, so there, there's hope. I mean, you uh, you call yourself uh, like a pessimist, so you see some hope at least here for Germany. Oh yeah, I. You know, there's a look. I, I think the I think the world is going to get better, but for I think the economies are going to continue to improve. Europe is sort of woken up to uh, it's kind of coming out of recession. Um, I, if you look at your leadership, you have opted for what I call boring, competent, and honorable leadership, and people are finding there's a lot of advantages to that. Uh, so I think Germany and China have probably 
stepped into the void that America has created for leadership around the world. Um, you know, I'm hoping it's Germany because I'd rather see Germany fill that void than China. But largely, you know, loosely speaking, Europe, this is kind of Europe's moment. It's coming out of a recession or it's kind of economic funk. It's, it's been in for the last 20 years. And when you talk about Europe, you're really talking about, about Germany. So I think there's, I think Germany should and will play an outsized role in terms of leadership and the global stage over the course of the next 10 years, because quite frankly, there's been an enormous void created by the U S. Okay. Um, um, is it, is it okay if I ask you, like, I mean, I know some from a, from a previous conversation we had that you have a very specific uh, connection to Germany through your wife, wife, is that correct? Yeah. So my wife was raised in, was raised in Munich. And we spend uh, um, several weeks every year in in Munich, and um, you know we're big fans of Germany. We're teaching our kids how to speak German, so we have very strong, very strong ties to Germany. And 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 your your big breakthrough as like a a thought leader, as a global thought leader, also happened in Germany. I would argue it was the, your first presentation at DLD a couple of years ago when you first came out with the Four Horsemen. Is that a correct perception? Yeah, that's exactly right. I was invited to speak at a conference that I'd never heard of and I had no intention of going. And my wife demanded that we go because it was in Munich. So we went and I, I gave a, a talk called Before about Amazon, Apple, Facebook and Google. And I was being I didn't know this, but I was being uh, videoed. And then DLD posted the video and the video got, you know, a couple million views and set in motion a lot of wonderful things for me and my firm. So I got a book deal out of it. I got a ton of attention from companies, regulators, lawmakers. So it was sort of an accidental, you know, it's one of those serendipitous moments. But yeah, I, I owe DLD a lot. And now Steffi Sherney, the co-founder of DLD, and Yossi Vardy, they're two people that whenever they call me and ask me anything, I can't say no because they remind me that they made me famous or, or sort of famous. <laughs> Um, the, the second thing that, that made you even more famous is, is your Amazon and Whole Foods prediction. Um, is, did that even like increase your fame even further, right? Yeah, I wouldn't. Fame, fame, fame's the wrong, the wrong term, but it was a fun thing to talk about. And the reality is I just got very lucky. My timing is because not only did we make the prediction, but we made it the week before it happened. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it just the timing was, was really fortuitous. And, and to be honest, that was... That was just very lucky. Any any other big acquisitions that you that you foresee right now? You know, I, I thought Amazon was going to acquire a Nordstrom or Carrefour in Europe. Amazon is doing a deal with Monoprix in France. I think you're going to see a lot of activity from Amazon either in fashion and or um, grocery because grocery is becoming increasingly important or, or strategic. Um, you're going to, you know, I'm not. I don't have a vision for any one specific acquisition, but what we're going to see, and it's not as bold a prediction, is we're going to see some of the strangest mergers we've ever seen. We're going to see healthcare companies merge with um, consumer companies. There's so much fear around Amazon right now. The companies that naturally wouldn't have considered connecting are now contemplating very strange, unnatural relationships. So. You know, the only prediction I would make right now is the amount of mergers and acquisitions over the next two or three years will be greater than it's been probably, you know, in the last 20. Um, how, how many people are like helping you to make those predictions? I mean, how do you prepare 
um, your thoughts and your presentation? Is that like a you you talking to people in the industry, you reading stuff, your team giving you information? I mean, you're like quite deep into into German companies, into European legislation. Um, how does it all get into your head? So I'm blessed with a great team here at L2. We have 150 people, some very talented people. I always say that they do the work, I just take the credit. So we'll get in a room with several analysts and we'll start talking about themes and things we're seeing out there. And then we have a 24-person creative team that helps me with the visuals. So by all means, I'm just sort of the spokesperson. This, you know, All these presentations and predictions are the output of a lot of smart people here at L2. I just get the credit for it. Um, and, and why did you decide to sell your own company like last year? It's, it looked like a very st strong and, and fast-growing company in an industry that's even getting more attention than, than, than ever, uh, digital and, and, and marketing. It, it, it looked like a, an unusual timing to sell it uh, the previous year. Sure. So I've started a lot of companies. Some have gone well, some have not gone well. But one of the things I've Or a couple, so there's a couple of things I've learned over the course of being an entrepreneur over the last 25 years. One is that when the company is doing really well, your instincts are to hold on and not to sell. And then when things are getting a little wobbly or they feel a little, um, I don't know, precarious, that's when you think you should sell. And the reality is it's the opposite. When your firm is doing really well, that's the time to think about selling uh, because acquirers are smart. And they will, they will sense opportunity and strength when they do due diligence. Uh, so uh, selling a company as it's surging is a great time to get what I would call an irrational multiple. Uh, you also, uh, what I've learned over the last 25 years is that market dynamics trump individual performance. So in 1999, my first firm profit was doing about $5 million in revenues, and we were offered $55 million for the company. We were offered 11 times revenues because 99, the markets were hot. It was the go-go days of the internet. But my company was doing well, and I was arrogant, and I was young and stupid, and I said no. And then three years later, after the market corrected with the, the kind of the dot-bomb crisis of 2000, my firm was doing $15 million. It was doing triple the revenues. And I sold it for half the price. I sold it for $28 million or about two times revenues. And there was really no difference in the momentum or the strength of the company. But one, got, one was offered 11 times revenue. And just two years later, three years later, was offered two times revenues. And so what my advice to entrepreneurs is not only look at the strength of your company, but look at the market dynamics. And a year ago, my observation was the markets were at all-time highs. There was no one else really doing what we were doing. We were working with 30 of the 100 largest consumer brands in the world. And also, firms aren't sold, they're bought. We had a number of people approach us at the same time, so I felt like we could probably uh, motivate uh, a, a competition or a bidding war. NASDAQ at all-time highs. So what I told my venture capitalists and my employees, who all had the same reaction, they said, well, we're doing great, why would we sell? And my reaction was, well, that's exactly when you sell. And the markets are at all-time highs. We could execute perfectly for the next five years, triple the size of the business, and sell for the same or a lower price than we can in a market where the NASDAQ just hit 7,000. Also, the opportunity to get liquidity to your employees. So I've sold a few companies. I have a little bit of money in the bank. But a lot of the people, the average age of employees at L2 is 27. So 
most of them just have student debt. So the opportunity to get your employees liquidity when you already have it is something you should always take seriously. And if you look at a company, even the best companies, the opportunities to kind of move to cash or get liquidity don't come around that long. So, you know, we ended up selling it at what, what most people would consider as a very healthy multiple. You know, I, I talked to Henry Blodgett about this. We were talking about Business Insider. Business Insider continues to thrive. It was doing really well when they were sold. That's when you sell. So uh, this for me was an easy decision. My VCs didn't want to sell. A lot of the employees didn't want to sell. But uh, again, sell when you're doing well. Sell when the markets are high. Sell when you can sell when there's offers because they're few and far between. Um, now, there's, there's a lot of companies in Germany that, that can't sell, that are not built as a, as a venture capital uh, company or the startup. Like we have a, what you call the, the middle stunt. Um, and they have to deal with like the GAFA, the big four companies long term. I'm sure you get a lot of requests from companies of that type in, in the US as well. What's your number one advice to companies, middle stunt companies, revenues between, I don't know, 20 million to 2 billion, maybe even 20 billion? What can they do and how do they have to prepare for, for the new age? Wow, there's a lot of stuff. So there's just no getting around it. Technology is playing a bigger role in any company. So figuring out a way to attract the best engineering or technology talent is a constant struggle for old economy companies. So establishing relationships or even locating near great universities, I think is a key to success. I think having a pipeline of smart young people who really understand technology is kind of the mother's milk of, of business moving forward. I think owning a niche um, creating an organizational structure that rewards risk-taking. Um, people don't like to hear this, but oftentimes, you know, there's some very boring things a company needs to do. They need to take down their profit expectations and margin and reinvest more into technology because, you know, if you look at one thing these companies have in common is they just spend a tremendous amount of money on R&D and aren't afraid to invest massive amounts of capital long-term. So a lot of times when boards ask me to come in and, comment on what they should do. They think I'm going to bring magic pixie dust around culture or some <laughs> sort of idea. And usually what I tell them is they need to lower their profit expectations, their EBITDA margins, and reinvest more back into the company. But loosely speaking, an ability to attract the best and brightest, which is not easy, ch charting a path for young people that says this is a great place to accelerate your career, strong relationships with technical universities, uh, try to own a niche. Don't be afraid, you know, your CEO needs to show the leadership and provide his uh, direct reports with the resources necessary to have some shot at competing, creating a culture of risk taking, such that you're taking more risks and not being afraid to kill the things that aren't working such that you can start start uh, taking taking other risks. Uh, but And also, to be blunt, if I were a German company, I would band together with other companies and I would figure out ways that you could push back on the four as a larger group because, you know, I'll use, I'll use a war analogy. When the, when the, when the, when the Germans, when the Germans invaded Poland and, and Czechoslovakia, the British couldn't fight the Germans. So they figured out a way to, to put aside their differences and they allied with the Russians. So I would argue that Mercedes, BMW and Audi are competitors, but they're not each other's enemies. And they need to, I would suggest they get in a room and talk about how they could potentially partner on some things that might lower their costs or give them the ability to acquire consumers at the same cost that Amazon is. Because 
I think slowly but surely, everybody is facing an existential threat from one or more of these four companies. And what I always tell, you know, I don't think Nike and Adidas are enemies. I think they're competitors. I think their enemy is in Seattle. Okay. Um, I mean, Germany is a, is a, is a huge uh, car industry, car country, um, and everybody's looking uh, to Tesla right now here in Germany. Um, any comments on Tesla? So... The general test I apply to an industry around how how vulnerable it is to disruption is you look at the price of the the average price of the products relative to inflation. So if you look at cable television, cable TV in the U.S. was about 80 bucks a month 10 years ago. Now it's around 200. And there really hasn't been a ton of underlying innovation with the traditional cable providers, which means it has absolutely set it up, set itself up for disruption. You see Netflix come in, you see Amazon Prime come in all of a sudden. Um, Advertisers can't reach as many people via traditional broadcast and take their budgets and put them into Facebook and Google. So Netflix has probably been one of the best things to happen to Facebook and Google. And cable television thought they had a monopoly and raised prices faster than inflation for 20 years. Education in the U.S. is very vulnerable because we've been raising prices faster than inflation. When I look at the auto industry, the price increases versus inflation have actually been decreases. So I would argue that the, the, if you would call it the vulnerability to disruption in the auto business is actually pretty low. If I look at my Mercedes, I own a, I own a GL 550, a Mercedes truck, uh, SUV, and I also own a, a BMW 7 Series. I love German cars. <laughs> and, and I've owned the same cars but different models for the last 20 years. Uh, I just keep updating them. I just trade them in every two or three years and get the new model. And I believe on an inflation-adjusted basis, the cars I buy now are less expensive than the cars I was buying 20 years ago, and yet the product is just far superior than the car I was buying 20 years ago. So I would argue the, car, the auto industry is not that vulnerable to disruption. And what I've advised many of the kind of unicorns or new economy companies who are making big investments in the auto industry is that I believe that's a shareholder-destroying um, venture because... I don't think the auto industry is that vulnerable. Now, should they should they sit you know sit back and wait to be disrupted? No, but I think Tesla right now is an investment in vision and the Thomas Edison of our age. But I, I'm actually I believe I believe Tesla could in fact you know be a company that in 10 years either goes away or is, is or is acquired because this is a capital intensive industry. It is an industry that has fantastic products, is very robust, very diversified offers tremendous value, again, going back to pricing. So I'm actually quite bullish on, um, on the traditional automakers. I think they've done a good job. I think they've kept their prices low. They're making great investments in technology. BMW and Mercedes both have fantastic digital footprints. They do a really good job. I think they've made great investments in their human capital. So, you know, bottom line is I think they're smart to be scared. I think they're smart to be paranoid. I think they're smart to be looking at Tesla, but I think the Tesla of the future is probably going to be um, uh, a Mercedes or a BMW. Do, do you see like Elon Musk as a PR genius or is he like a true Edison of our times? I mean, you just called him that, but many um, observers these days like see his PR and all his tweets and all his PR stunts and, and ask themselves, is that, is, that, is that substantial or is it just press right now? So is he a Thomas Edison or the master showman? And I think the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, this is, 
no getting around it. This guy has incredible vision. Uh, he's boring tunnels in Los Angeles right now. He's he's not afraid to try and build rocket uh, rockets. I mean, you look at rockets, batteries, cars. He's sort of every eight year old's dream when he grows up, right? So the he's definitely a visionary, definitely an incredible technologist. But his ability to spin a story has resulted in access to capital that enables him to pursue his dreams. So there may be another Thomas Edison out there. There may be hundreds of them, maybe even thousands, but they don't have the gift of storytelling that he has, which enables him to find to have the capital to pursue his dreams. So the one thing you see in common, and this is a piece of advice, your CEO really does have to be a master storyteller because it's the boring things that make companies successful. One of those boring things is access to capital. And if you look at the original investor letter from 1997 from Jeff Bezos and you read it, he talks about there are three truisms of consumer value, speed, selection, and convenience. Sorry, speed, selection, and value, or convenience, value, and speed. I'm, I'm getting them confused. But you read the letter and he says, we're going to make massive investments across these three because they will never go away. And regardless of short-termism or punishment from the market, we're going to continue to make massive investments across these three. You read this letter and you just want to invest. You want to buy shares. You think, this is a guy who gets it. I'm going to go buy shares. Every time you hear him talk, I spoke right after him at a conference in Miami two years ago. And after hearing him talk, I thought, I'm going to go buy Amazon stock. <laughs> so the ability to be a great storyteller and raise a ton of capital is an enormous competence. And most of the great leaders of these enormous tech companies have the gift of storytelling that enables them to go through the rough times when their R&D is ahead of their, their revenues or when they launch a phone that's a failure or they launch a social media platform that doesn't work or they, they say it's not going to be apps, it's not an app economy. I and mean, keep in mind, Mark Zuckerberg said, apps are not the way to go. It's all about a web-based economy and he was wrong, but he immediately pivoted. But they had so much cap capital and so much credibility in the marketplace that they were able to survive that bump. Amazon spent a billion dollars launching a phone. It was a total failure and it really didn't matter. So you know, Elon Musk is the perfect example of one of the new comp you know, requisite competences in a leader in the digital age, and that is the ability to, to, to tell a story and raise a lot of capital. Trans transforming that insight into Germany, maybe it's also the story of Oliver Zamva and Rocket Internet. I mean, he also is like a genius in raising capital. Um, yeah, I agree with that. They're they're fantastic, and the guys at Zalando are really good too. I heard them speak, and I thought these guys have a great rap. Okay, um, any other companies, uh, German companies that you follow? I mean, like even like cars, digital companies, anything else that you like from our industry? Well, I think, I think uh, so I know um, Dr. Callen at Borda. I think he's, he's more of a kind of, he's not as much a storyteller, but he comes across as just exceptionally competent and a good person. So I think that type of leadership, it's very German, it's sort of the Angela Merkel approach to leadership or, or competence is the new black. And I think he instills a lot of confidence in his employees and his shareholders. I think Matthias Dobfner is that kind of visionary storyteller. I think he could probably... I think he's arguably one of the most credible or visionary CEOs in Europe right now. Uh, so Germany has a lot of, you know, Ger Germany produces a lot of great business leaders. Um, here at OMR, we have the tradition or the habit of, of trying ways um, how to get rich quick through the internet. 
Um, any advice on that? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Try to get rich in 25 years, but accidentally you might get rich quick. It's not, you know, it, it, look, it, people are very, people always say, entrepreneurs say, oh, I'm doing this because we want to build something great. Um, okay, so let, let, let me back up. If I were going to go into a sector that I think offers a ton of opportunity, I think the two technologies that offer the biggest opportunity right now are voice and messaging. If I were a young person starting a company, I would want it to be based on the progress and innovations around voice or messaging. Those are the two spaces I would want to overinvest, if you will. Okay. Um, like following your, your path from, from DLD and then the wholesale prediction uh, or the Whole Foods prediction and the latest... The latest um, Uh, story that, that that you created and that I think that that you are um, spinning or that you're like telling the world is the breakup of big tech. Um, why is that like so important to you? Why did you choose that storyline? So when I started writing the book The Four, it was sort of a, a, a love a love letter to these companies. I own their stocks. I work with them. I think they're great. I, I think they're just incredibly impressive companies, and I still believe that. But as I spent about 24 months researching them and researching the business ecosystems around them, I slowly came to the conclusion that their influence and power and the concentration of that power was stifling innovation. And if you look at the number of businesses being started in the U.S., it's been cut in half in the last 40 years. And because we constantly talk about these companies, we're under the impression that in every dorm room a new business is being hatched. And the reality is in 1978 in the U.S., every day there were twice as many new businesses being formed as there were now because, you know, if you're a certain, if you fit a certain mold, you can raise hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital here in the U.S., but everybody else raises zero. So it's actually a very difficult time to start new businesses. In America, two-thirds of jobs come from small business, and obviously innovation is synonymous with new business uh, formation. So... It is very difficult for a small business to get any traction and not be spotted by and then routinely executed by one of the big four. Facebook has technology that scans every consumer app in the world and tracks its progress. And when, and when a consumer app starts getting traction or traffic, they look at the features that are most popular in that app and they adopt them into their own comparative or competitive apps. And if the company are, is still continues to gain momentum despite Facebook copying those features, such as Instagram, they just go and acquire it. So we have an ecosystem now where you're basically starting a company just hoping to be acquired because if you're not acquired by one of the four, you'll likely be put out of business. This is not good for the economy. It's not good for the middle class. It's not good for our tax base. So I believe these companies have come to a point, and it's a natural point in the economic cycle. And also, I don't think they've done anything wrong. I think for-profit companies are supposed to pursue growth of earnings, growth of share. They're supposed to do whatever they can, use all their competitive weapons at their disposal. But just as we broke Ma Bell up, just as we broke the railroads up, I think we've come to a point in technology where the markets need to be re-oxygenated. And that is, we would have a more robust economy If Facebook were four firms, if it was Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, and Messenger, I believe one of those companies as a feature to attract advertisers would offer much greater security and assurances that their platforms could not be weaponized. I think one of them would offer much greater privacy and maybe offer a paid product. So 
competition creates a lot of wonderful things. And right now we have a lack of competition because we have four monopolies who do what they do, uh, are supposed to do, and that is they abuse that monopoly power. So Amazon's a great company, but it should be Amazon, AWS, and Amazon Fulfillment. There should be not four companies, but there should be 12 or 15. There'd be more hiring, a broader tax base, less job destruction. We might have fewer billionaires, but we'd have more millionaires. And uh, I just think it's time. I think we're at that point in the economic cycle where these large companies, these monopolies, need outside intervention to break them up and re-oxygenate the marketplace. When you when you first came out with that with that analysis and or these, these thoughts and and you you mentioned them or you placed them in the public uh, opinion, to me and I think to many here in Germany, you were one of the first to come up with this idea and, and with this with this theme of of breaking them up. Were you surprised that no other prominent voice in the market? was having the, making the same requests or saying the same things no. or coming to the same conclusions? No, because it, what's happened in Europe and the U.S. is there's a strange phenomenon in our culture where we no longer worship at the altar of character and kindness and competence. We worship at the altar of innovators and billionaires. So I would bet the CEOs of Zalanda and Rocket are bigger celebrities than all but a few people, maybe, you know, Lewandowski, or I don't know who the biggest athlete is in Germany, but I would imagine they're treated like Christ figures. Here in the U.S., they're considered the new, they are our new religious figures. The, uh, the you know, it used to be movie stars, it used to be presidents, now it's, now it's uh, CEOs of tech companies. And we are so fascinated by innovation. So many of us have made money owning their stocks. So many of us know somebody or know a story of, A friend's son or daughter who went to work for one of these companies is now a millionaire. Their products are incredible. I mean, there's just no getting around it. The consumer value proposition is incredible. So any discussion of doing what is perceived is in any way constraining them or perceived as, as some sort of punishment is immediately has a gag reflex. And that is, oh, you don't get it. You're old. You're a socialist. You're dumb. You don't get competition. You're not part of the information age. And the argument I make is that breaking these guys up doesn't constrain them or constrain the marketplace. It liberates it. So when we broke up Ma Bell because it was a monopoly, we found there was a lot of innovation that was trapped in Bell Labs from cell phones to fiber optics to data that was unleashed. And we had 30 years of incredible innovation and shareholder value creation in the telco space. I believe there would be more shareholder value, more jobs, more new companies. I want to keep the party going. I don't want to punish these guys. I want to keep, you know, it's, it's 11 p.m. I don't want to shut the party down. The party can go much later. And I feel like the party is winding down for everyone but four people who are fat, drunk, and, you know, get all the attention and are having all the fun. And I want to keep the party going, and I want more people to engage or to participate in it. So this isn't about punishment. It's not about constraining them. It's about keeping the good time, the innovation company, the innovation economy humming. And I think people immediately see any call to break them up or regulate them as some sort of punishment that's going to go back to the old days. And I don't think that's the case. Um, when you first came out with these statements, I'm sure like a lot of people reached out to you and, and wanted to connect. Um, who, who were the most 
interesting ones to you that wanted to connect with you after you came out with these statements? Was it like people from Europe? Was it the PR departments of these companies um, who made the most interesting move to talk to you? So I've heard from all these companies, but I want to be fair. These companies, with the exception of one, they've all been very, what I'll call, courteous and polite. Um, nobody has tried to intimidate me from any tech company. So I think that's one of the wonderful things about America is I do think we value free speech and we value academics' pursuit of the truth. Um, you know, the only time I've ever heard, you know, Facebook reached out to me and told me that they wanted to speak to me and update me on my thinking, which is a fair request. And I said, no, I don't really want to meet with these guys and know them because I know myself and I'll like them and then I'll be less inclined to speak openly and honestly about them. And they expressed disappointment as I'm out there speaking about them and they felt that I needed to that I needed to hear both sides of the story. And back to your notion of being a journalist, I said, I'm not a journalist. I don't have an obligation to hear both sides of the story. I'm just a professor providing a viewpoint. Um, sounds like they are saying they're not a media company. Now you're saying you're not a journalist. That sounds familiar in a way. <laughs> there you go, right? I am, I'm a platform, not a journalist. <laughs> exactly, uh, exactly. <laughs> that's a fair point. Um, uh, the, so uh, the, the point there was that on the whole, these companies have been I don't want to use the term supportive, but a lot of people call me and say, you, get, you better be careful. These companies are going to hire someone to kill you. And I haven't found that at all. There's been really no real attempts to intimidate me or to shut me up. The, the, I hear from a lot of Fortune 500 CEOs who want to discuss thoughtful ways to push back and compete with these guys because a lot of companies didn't see. I've been Mercedes and BMW and Hugo Boss didn't see Amazon or Google or Facebook is really a threat. And now and now, almost everybody sees Amazon as one of their biggest threats. So there, you hear from a lot of really interesting business leaders. I've heard from a lot of people in government who want to talk about potential ideas for regulation or trust busting. And the most rewarding thing is you hear from entrepreneurs or you hear from uh, other academics who like your work and want to talk to you about it. You also hear from people, really thoughtful people who disagree with you and outline arguments and kind of illuminate you. To, I mean, initially I thought they should be regulated, and then I, I heard, you know, a lot of people pointed out that regulation can be somewhat clumsy and expensive and creates permanent government jobs, and, and uh, someone kind of opened my eyes to the power of trust busting. And so, you know, it's just great to be, when you do this podcast, a bunch of people are going to reach out to you, or a few people will reach out to you and say, it's interesting, can you tell me about how you got into podcasting? And it's It's nice to feel relevant. It's nice to feel, it's nice to hear from people that enjoy your work and you learn about their work. So this is, you know, on the whole, this has just been a hugely rewarding experience. Um, it's nice, uh, it's nice to have a dialogue. One of the really nice things about it is it's an international dialogue. So when I, I speak all over the world, people can relate to my topics and it's to a certain extent, the concerns about big tech a little bit, I want to say unite us or it's a common narrative or it's something everyone's trying to deal with. So I'm able to take this data and these learnings into the classroom. So that's incredibly rewarding. This has just been, you know, touch wood. This has been an incredibly rewarding experience and I hope it, and I believe it. I, I came from a, a, what I call an upper lower middle-class family here in the U S and I was given extraordinary opportunities and I started a lot of companies, none of them unicorns. And I was able to raise money for most of them, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. And they were sold for 28 million or they were sold for 3 million. I sold a company for 3 million. I sold a company for 28 million. I sold a company for 150 million. 
But I worry now that I would have trouble raising money for any of these companies because none of them really realistically offered the opportunity to be worth billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And if any of them began bumping up against any of the four in any in any way, they couldn't get funding. Try and start an e-commerce company right now in the U.S. No one's going to fund an e-commerce company. It's very difficult. Try starting an ad tech company right now. It's just we have to move back, in my opinion, to an ecosystem that gives more people the opportunity to live the German dream, the American dream, um, uh, because, you know, I had it, but I worry that kids, kids um, who are coming out of college don't have the same access I had, even though everybody thinks this is an age of innovation. It's actually not. This is an age of monopolies. Um, who inspires you? I mean, who do you listen to? How do you get your information? Like, who do you follow? Who's your, who's, what's the best book or the best speaker you've seen recently? What's the voice that you sometimes turn to that you think, wow, that's a great voice. Good thing we have that person. Oh, there's so many. I, my dad, when I was very young, turned me on to a guy named Peter Drucker, who was, I think, initially an Austrian economist. Um, uh, on management, I love uh, Kara Swisher, who does Recode out on the West Coast. I think she really strikes a nice balance between being an evangelist for technology, but holding them accountable. And I think she's, you know, tough but fair. I think she's a fantastic voice. We talked about Henry Blodgett. I think he does fantastic writing. I love The Economist. I think they continue to be sort of a, uh, a beacon of interesting viewpoint. I think The New York Times. I think, uh, 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 you know, your paper, Der Spiegel, does a fantastic job. I love newspapers. I think, uh, um, the Washington Post here is doing a fantastic job. Uh, I just read Phil Knight's biography, Shoe Dog. I like other academics' work. Dan Ariely at Duke University talking about behavioral economics. My colleague here, Adam Alter, wrote a wonderful book called Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology. I mean, there's just, there's just there's more wonderful um, authors and spokespeople and, and uh, media companies than there is time. There's a ton of places to find inspiration out there. Is it a good time to, to start a media company? Do you look at what, what the information, what Politico, what Axios, what all these guys are doing? I think those companies are brilliant. Um, I, I'm, I'm all for them. I think most of them will be crushed unless we can figure out a way to break up Google and Facebook because you know their only opportunity is to become a subscription-based company, which they may be able to do, and they're so outstanding they may be able to pull it off. But, you know, two-thirds, what if every year two movies commanded two-thirds of the box office? And by the way, we're headed that way. You know, and there's now the top 10 movies will take 90% of the box office. But what if only two movies captured two-thirds of the entire box office? That would mean the movie industry was not a very interesting place to work with less employment. That's where we are with online media. Because the revenue model is still mostly about advertising, and two-thirds of online advertising goes to two companies. So it's a terrible time to start a media company, and I'm not suggesting it, that scare anybody. What it's a great time to be, it's a great time to be a journalist, because we're finding painfully that the truth matters, or the honest pursuit of the truth matters. When I was on the board of the New York Times, I got to know a lot of journalists. The New York Times has a liberal bent to it. But on a regular basis, they would invite opinions from conservative writers and, and publish their opinions because they wanted to see the other side. And now we have 
you know, world leaders who are just entirely, you know, specifically our leader, totally focused on a narrative that has no basis in the truth. So as a result, the truth seems more scarce. And there's so much fake news uh, online, so much conspiracy, so much just false, false media, that the truth has become has become proportionally more scarce. And scarcity creates value. So there is renewed value in Build. There's renewed value in Der Spiegel. There's renewed value in the New York Times. And if you're a great journalist that pursues the truth without fear or favor, I think there's a renaissance. Whereas journalism was a terrible field for the last 30 years, I think it's seeing a bit of a renaissance. Am I bullish? Would I want to invest in a series of online media startups right now? Absolutely not. And I think that's one of the reasons we need to break up Facebook and Google. Would you invest in Der Spiegel if it was available for cheap? If it was very cheap, yes. As a matter of fact, I'm one of my largest investments. And uh, a company I serve on the board of is a Yellow Pages company. Now, this company is going out of business, but it's trading at such a cheap price. It was trading at two and a half times profits. And I said, okay, this company is going out of business, but it's not going out of business in two and a half years. And we have the cash flows to invest in new ideas to try and see if we can extend the runway or perhaps invent new businesses based on the fact that we're selling into three million small and medium-sized businesses around the U.S. and Canada. So there are a lot of old economy companies that are great investments. They may be bad businesses or challenged businesses, but they're great, in, in, they're, they're great investments because we, what we fail to realize is that investing is two parts. It's the strength and future and vision and potential of the company. And then the second part is the valuation. So for example, Zalando is a great company, uh, great leadership, great opportunity, great growth potential. I would not buy Zalando stock right now. It's trading at a multiple of EBITDA that is greater than Amazon. So there's so much expectation and promise built into Zalando that I think it will require incredible execution and wind at their back for them to grow into that valuation. So right now on a, on a multiple of profits, Zalando is more expensive than Amazon. And when I see Amazon coming into the marketplace, I, I wonder if Zalando is going is like to be like every other e-commerce company and begin to face some challenges as Amazon shows up with just massive uh, amounts of capital. So it's a long-winded way of saying that almost every company at the right price is a good investment. And almost every company at a certain price is a bad investment. Okay, Scott, uh, thank you so much for doing this, for taking this time. You gave us quite a bit here at OMR. I'm sure this podcast will, will go to a lot of people. Um, and before you plug your own stuff, uh, I'm happy to plug your stuff because I'm a, I'm a huge fan of what you do. And I, I, I watch uh, Winners and Losers on YouTube um, every time you put it out. And I every Friday I read your... Um, no Mercy, No Malice newsletter that I can recommend. Um, and then there's the book, uh, The Four. Anything that I forgot that you would like to mention? That's fantastic. I appreciate your generosity. And, and I'm going to be a World Cup. We're, we're rooting for Germany and Poland. We're hoping uh, Germany is obviously the favorite, but we're hoping that Robert Lewandowski has the World Cup of his life and that Poland makes the finals. We're going to be rooting for Poland this year. So Okay. Okay. Whoa. You're, you're into soccer. I didn't. I, I thought you like. You don't like sports. That, that's new to me. Yeah. Right? 
my don't, my 10 year old son is obsessed with Robert Lewandowski. Absolutely <laughs> obsessed with the guy. So we're going to the World Cup and we're rooting for Poland. Anyways, that's my that's my connection to Bayern Munich and Germany right now. You should you should like um, maybe take your son to the Champions League uh, semifinal that's happening um, tomorrow. There's the there's the there's the the draw. Like who's they're gonna play? Maybe Bayern Munich is gonna play Real Madrid in the Champions League semifinals in three weeks. If you take your son to Munich for for one of the games, it's it's two legs, um, one in, in Munich and the other wherever the other whoever the other team is. Maybe Madrid, maybe Liverpool, maybe Rome. Um, that's gonna be a fantastic trip for you and your son. When does that happen? It's um, the 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 semifinal is um, in the, at the end of April. And the final is um, at the middle of May. Uh, it's the Champions League. It's the biggest like club tournament in the world, I would say, outside yeah. the World Cup, obviously. And just last night, there was the, the quarterfinals and the four semifinalists are Rome, Madrid, Munich and Liverpool. All four stadiums, all four teams are traditional teams. It's a fantastic semifinal setup. If I had a son that's a Robert Lewandowski fan and a soccer fan, and I had your money, I would definitely go come over to Europe and bring him and take him to one of these stadiums and have him here. That's, that's an amazing experience. That sounds like a great idea. Thanks for the insight. <laughs> okay, okay. Thank you for being on the podcast. All right, thank you. Best thank of luck. Okay, bye-bye. Bye now. Buzz.